Hi, and welcome to Newsreel with Joe and Neil. I'm Joe. And I'm Neil. And this week, we're going to be looking back at the week that was, trying to keep it real in mm. a world of fake news is really, really challenging these days because in because it's so much of it. The sheer volume of it is um, in the repeated lies, I suppose. That's what really gets people down, but it's meant to wear you down. So that's why we're here. That's why we try to keep it real, to keep, get back on the focus of what's really going on with these crazy events. Um, of course, the, the two... I suppose two interrelated, but two main topics we want to start off with uh, this week. The the sequence of events, really, that took place in Syria last week, early last week, Monday, Tuesday, the shooting down of the Russian transport, well, Russian reconnaissance plane, the IL-20. That was last Tuesday. We might also get into some of the goings on, mostly sayings, but also a serious terror incident in Iran that took place just yesterday, Saturday. Um, But we're going to lead today with the sequence of events in Syria last week. So if you remember, we had, uh, well, building up to this, there were weeks of um, anticipation that Russia would Russia, in combination with the Syrian forces, would clean up the Idlib province, where at this point an untold, unknown really number, but tens of thousands of jihadists slash rebels, in quotes, moderates of various stripes, have basically been pooled. They've been sent there um, as the Syrians and the Russians clear out other parts of the country. So they're all there in Idlib. It's basically a similar situation to what we saw in eastern Ukraine before that stopped in 2014, 2015, the kind of cauldron and the, the question of what to do about them. Anyway, the Syrians were all poised, at least um, they were telling people they were all poised to go in and deal with that situation. But then last week, Putin and Erdogan met. Erdogan had previously expressed his doubts about doing this. It's not really difficult to see why this place is bordering Turkey. He's worried about... Um, more refugees coming into the country, his country, from Syria as a result of any serious um, military operations that would take place in Idlib, which would, of course, involve um, airstrikes. So, but of course, there's also other factors as well. He has a hand in this game, namely that there are a number of those militants, again, numbers, who knows, I'm sure that the leaders involved in dealing with the situation probably have some good idea, but there's some percentage of them who are aligned with ideologically or simply financially with Turkey. And they would be the so-called remnants of the original free Syrian army. You remember them way back in 2011, 2012, they were supposedly the only ideological force, i.e. Syrians battling in a civil war against Assad in Damascus. Um, turns out they're actually just paid as well, like the rest of them. But in this case, they're aligned with Turkey. Anyway, so Erdogan managed to get what he wanted out of both Russia and Iran, really, um, after he went to Sochi last weekend. And they hammered out this tentative agreement. But it's also specific as well, where Putin and Erdogan said they're going to carve out a 15, 20 kilometer wide 
a demilitarized zone. And the, the two key points to take from this are probably that it's interesting that they can just announce that they can do this. It might take time to do it. But no matter who the terrorists are, whether even if they're in opposition, say, against Turkey and not working with it, the state forces have the means, the military means, and probably also the financial means to manipulate any of these groups however they want them. It's very interesting that they can just declare, we've agreed on this. I mean, you're thinking like, well, what about the preceding seven years? How difficult would, have been, would it have been for other parties, including Turkey, but the US, France, the UK, and Russia, to agree on a solution that would carve out other zones and deal with the terror? Anyway, so that it kind of gives the game away in the general sense, that deal last week, that they can just, once they come to a political agreement, anything is possible, including peace, apparently. However, the, the flip side of that is it, it's, gonna be, it's probably going to nevertheless be difficult for them to accomplish on the ground because it would involve the cooperation of at least some, if not most, of those militants. Um, noises they're making are to the effect that no way, we don't want any part of this. We realize we're being stitched up here between the Russians and the Turks and we'll resist it all the way. Um, so mm -hmm. it may not work. But the other take-home thing from this is the very fact of a political agreement in order to facilitate a military one between Turkey and Russia. That in itself was the development last week. Um, the continued a rapprochement between Turkey and Russia is significant given that, I mean, just three years ago there was a shootdown of a Russian plane which has officially gone down as having been done by Turkey, owned up to by Turkey, but almost certainly with a kind of fifth column element responsible for that in order to prevent this very rapprochement between Turkey and Russia at the level of, of the governments. Um, which is interesting because the very next day after this deal was struck, we had the shootdown of another Russian plane, which is similar in, in its basic um, situation to that earlier shootdown I mentioned. I think it was November 2015 of a Russian um, fighter jet, was it a bomber, a bomber plane, mm -hmm. uh, right on the border between Turkey and northern Syria. The other little, the other, well, it's pretty significant development, unrelated on the face of it, that took place also on Monday last week, was the Russian um, presentation of counter evidence to the main points, I think it hit all the main points, of the Dutch-led joint investigation team into the downing of MH17 in July 2014. And I mean, this presentation was, so we carried it on SOT. It basically hit three main points. The Russians produced counter evidence showing that, that this the specific missile used um, was produced in Russia in the 80s. And because they could produce the actual logs specific matching the serial number of uh, the missile of this from the book the BUK um, missile delivery system, and could then show 
that it was in the possession of a specific Ukrainian unit, the 223rd or something battalion of U- U- what became Ukrainian forces after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Ergo, it was uh, a, a Ukrainian missile. They presented a couple of other things as well. They um, did photographic analysis to show that the videos and photo evidence that has been used to date published by the Dutch Joint Investigation Team, but citing as their source, Bellingcat, that these photos um, and videos had been manipulated um, because of the juxtaposition of light, the shadows don't fall correctly. You might remember the famous one now of them showing what's allegedly um, a like a large articulated truck or lorry carrying a book system uh, transporting it through on a, along a road through woods that's that is correctly identified as being somewhere in eastern Ukraine, i.e., in rebel-held territory. Anyway, they could show that this truck was never there at all. It was planted inside actual footage of this location in eastern Ukraine. Um, there's another one where they show that this uh, the BUK system allegedly now driving itself along another road is in fact driving backwards when it, it, it cannot do that. At least it cannot do that and navigate successfully, which is going because it can only see the road ahead of it from the other end of the vehicle. So they have some pretty damning counter evidence to that. And the third main point that they presented last week was some interesting um, surveillance captured conversations of Ukrainian um, personnel um, I probably can't repeat it on there because it's pretty explicit, but they have um, they have some guy who's still currently uh, active in Ukrainian, a Colonel Russian Ruslan Grinchak. He's apparently caught um, in an intercepted communication in 2016, bragging about how we'll. Beep, F up another Malaysian Boeing. And this guy is interesting, this Ruslan Grinchak, because it was his specific unit that was supposedly tracking MH17 in flight on that day in 2014. So anyway, it's a pretty damning collection of counter evidence from the Russians that was last Monday. Mm. And it was met with uh, pretty much silence from the Western press, you know. What else could there be? They have to wait for Bellingcat to produce his counter-counter evidence. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's pretty, pretty, pretty depressing. Uh, pretty, pretty horrible, actually, the way the, uh, the media, Western press, is dealing with all of these uh, situations, including the kind of shoot-down of the Russian plane um, and, and how they're they're spinning it. Of course, the you know they don't have to spin it very much, I suppose, because uh, anytime anything bad happens to Russia, as far as the West is concerned these days, it's good. You know, so mm-hmm. they just have to just report it, and that that's good enough. You know, that's uh, Russia. Russia got uh, got hit basically, took a hit, yeah. And uh, the Western press and governments and stuff are are pretty pretty happy about that. Uh, so they don't have to manufacture any anti-Russian, um, you know, 
propaganda or whatever to to smear Russia, you know, yeah. the, in this they're, case, Russia, Russia, Russia got what they deserved as far as the West. Is exactly. Concerned, you know? That's unsaid, but in a way, their, their commiseration or their expression of, which would mm. be the formality that's normally done by people, is simply say, well, we had nothing to do with it. Yeah. Oh, that's that's great. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I think the main thing you can't really divorce this issue down of the, of the Russian reconnaissance or spy plane, you can't divorce it primarily from the announcement that day, I think, or maybe the day before, whatever. But like you were mentioning about the uh, the agreement between Turkey and Russia to create a buffer zone between Syrian military and the rebels that are left in in, in Idlib, the X number of thousands of rebels. Um, the obvious conclusion is that Israel wasn't happy about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and decided to send a message that, you know, it was not going to be, let's say, curtailed in any way, because obviously a buffer zone, it's a deconfliction zone, uh, governed or controlled by Russia, jointly with Russia and Turkey, Mm. and the Israelis were basically, you know, sending a message, a pretty clear message to the Israelis, or to the Russians, and, you know, by implication to the to the, the, the Turks as well, that you know they're not going to be stopped from bombing or attacking wherever they want well, in, in Syria. But let me challenge on that because to date, uh, Israelis' statements, the raison d'etre for their now admitted two hundred some airstrikes against Syrian targets in quotes because their 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 mo- their motive they say for doing so is to keep back Hezbollah and Iranian forces in Syria. That was their red line, supposedly. Plausible narrative. Okay, but here is Russian-Turkish cooperation in the north. Mm. What's their beef with that? What's Israel's beef with it? Yeah. Israel's beef with it is that uh, Israel, like um, the US from the get-go, has wanted uh, the removal of of the Syrian government. Right, yeah. Um, That thing which is... Unspoken in all of these not allowed, not allowed to talk about it, has never. I mean, it's amazing that over seven, probably coming close to eight years now of a Western-backed, Western-led with its with its friends in the Gulf and its allies and stuff, uh, war on Syria, on the Syrian people with the clear, explicitly made intention back before it started that Assad had to go. Mm-hmm. And they've been waging this war for seven years. And I'm pretty sure you could count on the fingers of one finger. Um, the middle one. The middle one. The number of times that uh, the Western media has explicitly said that this war was obviously about yeah. uh, the West, to fulfill the West's desire to uh, overthrow the Syrian government. So that's the kind of thing that pisses you off, you know. That It's just such a shocking lack of... They, honesty and transparency about they've, about they've said it often enough but it's always detached from it's the always, context of defeating ISIS well, and terrorism right well they haven't they've never said it in an explicit way that uh, they they said it previously um, that that was the intention all along mm-hmm. and because obviously they, when, they, when they've mentioned Assad or whatever they mention it in terms of Assad gassing his own people blah 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 it's, it's, it's they try to attach it to some narrative or some lie that Assad deserves to be overthrown for humanitarian reasons. 
that was not mm -hmm. the explicit intent or reason <clears throat> for overthrowing Assad before they started the war. It was simply because Assad wasn't playing ball with the West. Effectively, was just they, back then he hadn't gassed anybody. So what was there a reason for getting rid of him? Well, Assad, he, he's a dictator. But as far he's, as like, he's but, cracking down on a legitimate revolution uprising. But even before that, they were talking about before any uprising, they were talking about getting rid of him. Years before. That's correct. We found the... Back um, to 2006, I think, or even 2005. You remember Christiane Amanpour mm. went to interview him right. in Damascus. Right. And she said, you know, there's a lot of talk in Washington because... About, about overthrowing you. Overthrowing she, you. She didn't justify by anything. She mentioned, she mentioned dot, dot, dot. She didn't ex fully justify it explicitly, but dot, dot, dot. At the time, it was because Syria was being held responsible for the assassination of the former Prime Minister Hariri. of Lebanon, Hariri. Yeah. Well, well, but that was... Which was pinned on him, but... Yeah, but that's that's fairly weak sauce in terms of, you know, mobilizing Western military power to overthrow, overthrow a government simply because of some local uh, infighting or squabbling, even, right. if, even if the Syrians were responsible for it, which they weren't, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, it was very clear that uh, the Israelis were responsible for, for killing uh, Hariri. But that goes back, that brings us back to Israel, and Israel has been gunning for Syria for a very, very long time. And today, oh. as, as, the, as the US takes a kind of backseat and the Western powers go quiet, you know, they kind of go dark to a certain extent on Syria after, after a few years of Russia's involvement there, the only one who's still front and center and screaming bloody murder about Syria is Israel. So this has always been as much Israel's war as anybody else's and mm -hmm. Israel's attempt to overthrow this, the Syrian government. Um, and they're not backing down on it and they don't want... I mean, there's some justification to... I mean, it's tied together, obviously. Their, their animosity towards Syria is, is, does obviously include their, their fears and their, their animosity towards Iran. You know, Iran and Syria are, are aligned, basically. So it's basically... Both of them are... The, are, are the same thing as far as the Israelis are, are concerned, you know, a, a free kind of independent Syria under Assad and, you know, with Russia as their as their big brother type thing, protector, uh, means for Israel, it means that Iran will have free run of the place as well. Uh, that's not necessarily true, but then the Israelis are known for their paranoia and their general nut jobbery. So um, they their concern about Syria is that Iran would, uh, you know, be able to, like they say, you know, threaten Israel in some way or other, which is, you know, not, it's not that paranoid uh, a belief, but it's only paranoid, it is paranoid in the sense that the way Israel presents it, which is Iran is trying to wipe Israel from the pages of history, that it wants to have a Holocaust part two and mm -hmm. wipe out all the Jews, run them into the sea and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not really the case. Iran wants some kind of parity of power or as close to parity as power and wants to increase its power in, in the Middle East, uh, which is very at the moment and has been for many years, many decades, mm -hmm. a disbalance towards the West and towards Israel and towards uh, the Western Western allies in the Middle East, like, the, like Saudi Arabia and the other smaller kind of Gulf states. So Iran is simply attempting to <clears throat> kind of bring some balance back to the situation. It doesn't mean that it would, ultimately Iran would have to, you know, live in a Middle East, in a new Middle East of Iran's 
more to Iran's liking, it would have to live with Israel. Uh, but the only way you can bring the Israelis to the negotiating table and not have them uh, not be subject to their whims and their wishes, basically have to bow down to every Israeli dictate. The only way you can do that is to threaten them, uh, because obviously Israel is threatening everybody else in the Middle East with its possession of nukes. Uh, that's why Iran wants to get some nukes as well, so it can restore some parity, because balance is much better than disbalance, you know, because, mm -hmm. you know, people, when there's disbalance, one country basically suffers unduly, uh, it doesn't get its fair share, basically, and that's, that's the way it's been in the Middle East for a long time. And Iran, along with Syria and along with Russia, are trying to establish a new kind of order in the Middle East that's fair. The Israelis aren't interested in fairness because they've been sitting at the top table, the top of the top table in the Middle East for a very long time, and they're not inclined to to take any kind of a, uh, a backseat, or not even a backseat, but just an equal seat yeah. with, with everybody else, you know. So that's part of the reason they don't like, that's part of the reason they don't like this idea of um, the the buffer zone because the buffer zone that was an agreement that was established between Russia and Turkey just before the plane was shut down effectively was leading up to a removal of those jihadis by peaceful means instead of bombing them and killing them in, in, in Idlib or in Idlib, in the Idlib area it was going to get rid of them on the famous buses where they could go down to you know, they could go and hang out in the US military base in the South Lake where the rest of them are or over at Deir Azor with the Frenchies, Frenchies seem to like uh, like hanging out with some jihadi mercenary terrorist types as well. Um, so they they really didn't like that um, because they want to keep a state of war. They want to have the, these mercenaries on the ground that are effectively in the pay or doing the orders of Israel slash America slash Saudi Arabia, whatever. And they don't want them. They don't want them to go away. They don't want them to be neutralized in any way. Uh, so that's why they effectively sent this message targeting Russia and saying that, you know, there was going, basically Israel was saying there's going to be no peaceful resolution. As far as they're concerned, there's going to be no peaceful resolution to their, this long-running jihadi war on Syria. The jihadis aren't going away. Uh, it's not over, basically, as mm -hmm. far as uh, Russia and Syria have been trying to say over the past few months in particular, you know, it's pretty much over. Syria has won, Assad has won the war with its help from Russia. It's all over. It's done. And Israel's like, no, it's not. Right. And if we're going to we're going to shoot down a Russian plane, for to to make to make that point clear to underline that point, uh, there's also I mean that area obviously of Idlib it's in the kind of it's in the north of Syria but you know it's close to not far from Aleppo and close to a proposed kind of Iranian route over to the sea, mm -hmm. um, like a gas terminal project. Well. Many different projects, but just military basically a, land, base, a, a military base, a land Iran, route, like a land route over to the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a naval base, whatever. Uh, not far from, not far from the Russian one. Uh, they're in uh, Tartus or further north, let's say. Yeah, and and Israel doesn't want that. And I would also say that Iran or uh, Turkey doesn't want that. Mm -hmm. You know, Turkey has its own fears about um, Iranian kind of resurgence or. Uh, in, in, in the Middle East and, and what it would stand to, how it would stand to lose in a broader, longer-term game and stuff, you know? So that's why... That's why it only agrees to peace in Idlib or any kind of development in a positive, general, peaceful direction that clears the problem up if it has a direct hand in right. how that unfolds, right. which right. is what Putin compromised with last week. Mm -hmm. He's like, well, no Americans can be here mm. as part of this. Okay, you, Turkey, will let you in on this. Mm. 
And the, yeah, the Turks, I don't think the Turks are so much concerned. That's a bit of a ruse. They're not really concerned about, you know, humanitarian crisis or uh, it's not a serious concern for them, I don't think, about... They've already taken in millions. Exactly. Anybody coming across the border, jihadis or whatever, they're more concerned about... They're also concerned about Iranian right. uh, access to, you know... That's kind that of... Area. That would be just one, below Turkey because Turkey comes down there right below, you know, Turkey. Turkey yeah. Turkey's, the border of Turkey comes down kind of into Syria, if you know what I mean, along the coast. There's a little mm-hmm. nub that comes down um, and they're concerned about that general area. And uh, th- there you get into kind of broader geopolitical gas, oil, pipelines, all that kind of stuff, the broad geopolitical balance of power as it relates to energy resources. Uh, that's part of Turkey's concern as well. So it's obviously a part of everybody's concern, you know, mm-hmm. but it's the broad, it's that's in the broader picture. Um, the nitty gritty is, is, yeah, it's about... Um, maintaining control over the specific areas and blocking one country and making sure that you control a certain part of, 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 of your neighbor's country and all that kind of stuff. It's kind of complicated and pretty stupid as well. Um, but for me, there's no doubt. I mean, I know people that Putin said the shoot down was uh, a tragic accident. Uh, it's not, it's obviously not a we, tragic accidental chain of events. Yeah. Well, but obviously the, the, the defense, Russian defense ministry aren't, well, uh, aren't agreeing with that. And pretty much today they, well, they released a video, a breakdown of what actually mm-hmm. happened there. And they reiterated that this was either due to Israeli recklessness or, or basically idiocy amongst the air force, you know? Yeah. You can play a little bit of that. Uh, yeah. There's a, they, the Russians made a quick, um, graphic uh, video presentation. Here it is, just a minute long. It's not really any new development from what they, the basic report they gave last week and yeah. within hours of the event taking place. But yeah, they just confirmed we did an initial investigation. All of our radar data show exactly these movements of there's the Israeli jets. That in the sea is the French frigate. Um, and the red is the Russian plane. Mm-hmm. There you see the Israelis bombing Ilataki around Hemenem Air Base, to the, just to the north of it, which set the plane off to try and get away from that mm-hmm. and then circle to land mm-hmm. Hemenem. And at this point, we don't have an English translation of what their, their talk through this video says, but I think they're saying that one of the jets then did this maneuver where it pulled up right beside it. Mm-hmm. And a Syrian well, jet mistook either the cluster or one Israeli jet for yeah. Well, it seems else. it seems to have been if you if you look at the actual details of it, it's 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 a pretty clear uh, yeah setup. Uh, I don't think I don't I even think that the Russian Def- Ministry of Defense aren't going far enough uh, by saying that it was recklessness or or stupidity, basically or unprofessionalism. It was actually deliberately planned this way by the by the Israelis who, you know, have a history or reputation for operating by deceptive means, uh, you know, doing something mm-hmm. and then saying, well, I didn't know it wasn't my fault. I don't know anything about that. Um, when they obviously did plan it. I mean, so the, the thing is the Russian uh, spy plane had taken off and was heading up to the north of Syria, northwest of Syria uh, for a reconnaissance mission. Idlib, presumably. Um, maybe, That's well, northwest maybe, of Latakia. Yeah, north, further north, basically, from okay. Latakia, from where it took off in the northern, more northern area. And um, 
the Israelis called the Russians and told them that we're going to be bombing the, that northwestern area of Syria, where your plane is heading. So the Russians came back down south uh, towards the Hamanum Air Base, um, and ju af just after they told them, they really told them this, then the four F-16s dropped four precision guided bombs on, bombs on an area, on a, what they claimed was weapon storage uh, close to Latakia. <clears throat> they did this, you know, as the plane was kind of, as the Russian plane was coming back to that area. So they basically lied to them about where the bombing was going to happen. Right. Uh, if the Russian plane had continued on its original trajectory, it would have been well out of the area, well out of the way of any of any bombing or missile shooting. But the Israelis actually giving the, by giving the Russians the wrong information actually caused the plane to come back into the area, the, the kind of hot zone, where, where where missiles were going to be fired or bombs were going to be dropped. Uh, so after so they told them this, the plane starts to come back down towards. Then they immediately drop four bombs, like only given it was only a minute later, drop four bombs on a on a weapons depot, supposedly. And then the four F-16s fly back out to sea. As the Russian plane then is coming back in and has decided to go and land at the, at the Russian airbase, um, one of the Israeli jets, four of which that are out of sea, one of them then comes back in, <clears throat> turns on its radar jamming uh, systems, which signals that it is planning to carry out another attack to the ground-based radar, steering ground-based radar, uh, alerting them then there that to, to, to the idea that they should they need to respond to this. Yeah. And it and it did that right in the vicinity. So it flew back in from the sea. One of them flew back in from the sea, signaled that it was going to launch an attack to the Syrian uh, anti-aircraft systems, and flew close to the Russian plane. Right. Right. And then, then the obvious thing happened, which is that the Syrians take the appropriate response. Fire a, fire a missile, the, the Israelis know that by flying their plane close to the Russian plane, the Russian plane is highly likely to be targeted rather than the, the Israeli jet. <clears throat> because remember that, first of all, the, 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 the first attack uh, where they dropped the four bombs were four Russian or four Israeli jets. Mm -hmm. uh, the, and then only one comes back in but the Russian plane would have a kind of radar signature that made it look like, the Russians even said this, made it look like four jets again. Yeah. So it's basically you, you present a scenario, here's your attackers, then those attackers go away. Only one of them comes back in, sends a, a basically a, a radar, uh, an electronic signal to the ground-based radar saying that it's going to attack beside the Russian plane mm -hmm. that looks like to the radar the four planes that had just bombed the, yeah, bombed, bombed Syria, bombed the, uh, the, the weapons depot. And then obviously the obvious thing happens, or the highly likely thing happens, is that uh, the Russian plane gets shot down in place of the Israeli planes with the full foreknowledge and deliberate conscious intent of the Israeli Air Force. Mm -hmm. So for anybody to say that wasn't deliberate there, well, you're stretching it, really. Yeah. It, it was deliberate, but done in such a way that there was plausible, barely plausible barely. deniability after the fact. Well, the Russians immediately called out Israel. And they had Defense Secretary Shoigu saying, we blame Israel. Yes, then later that day, last Tuesday, 
Putin cli- appeared to climb down from that when he was said a chain of tragic accidental events. A reporter at the press conference where he gave that answer, though, asked him specifically, did you sign off, though, on the Russian Ministry of Defense's earlier statement? He said, yes, I did. Now, it moved on from there, and that appeared to be what it was, a climb down, paper things over a little bit. But now they've come up with this presentation a week later, five days later, and it's the same, what exactly they were, what they were saying before. In addition, though, the statements from... Um, the Russian MOD spokesman, that um, big fair-haired fellow with the wire-rimmed glasses, uh, Konashenkov, yeah, he gave them, he gave them uh, two possibilities. At worst, it was, or at best, rather, it was extreme neg- negligence on their part. But the overall tone of what he was saying is that he, we revert back to our initial statement. Um, he... Let no let it be known that the deconfliction line that the Russians and Israelis had set up in 2015, that over the course of the last three years, Russia has sent 310 notifications to the Israeli Air Force, while the latter notified the Russians only 25 times, even uh, though its jets carried out more than 200 airstrikes. Right, so only about, temp- only about 10% of the time do the, the Israelis actually use that yeah. deconfliction hotline, because Israel won't be told what to do by anybody, right? Yep. He goes on to say, this is an extremely ungrateful response to all that has been done by the Russian Federation for Israel and the Israeli people recently, specifically citing Russian military um, support in the Golan Heights, the operation that preceded Idlib. And in Israel's red line, ostensibly, its public narrative, were that, well, there are Iranians there and they're right on our border. So Russia personally oversaw the transportation of anyone who's Iranian personnel and uh, about a thousand people, they, they said. Um, a total of 1,050 personnel, tactical missiles and 145 pieces of other munitions and military equipment were withdrawn from that area and pushed 140 kilometers east of Syria. I presume that means up to Deir Azor, somewhere, for, uh, somewhere up there at the Euphrates, away from Israel. He goes on to say, in view of the above, i.e. what we've done for you, the hostile actions committed by the Israeli Air Force against the Russian plane crossed the line of civilized relations. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's pretty unequivocal um, and unusual in that it's, it's calling Israel out on the carpet. Mm-hmm. When, has, when does that ever happen? I, I, I thought last week that when Putin did that sort of climb down that they had... They had gone. They had decided it was, you know, in their better interest not to do that because nobody does that to Israel. I mean, the whole world sees this fundamentally uncivilized behavior of that regime on everything from Gaza incursions to sniping kids to everything. And here in an in a war theater, they're saying that one thing that shall not be said. This regime is fundamentally uncivilized. It's not playing by the rules. It's a wild card, you know. Well, after they shot down their plane and killed 15 of their, of their military personnel, do you think they're justified, no? Absolutely. They're, they're allowed to say something, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Well, or, or, or do you have to just, you know, do you have to let Israel kill you? And, well, and I mean, Israel do, are, are you expected to let Israel kill your family members? And then not say anything about it? 
Well, Israel killed some 50 or 60 American seamen in 1968, mm. and that was completely hushed up. Mm. Yeah. Never mind reported, and never mind Israel being called out on the carpet. Israel's super special. Super special. And that's why I did think that was fairly unique. Now, the criticism is, ju is just, and I agree. I mean, well, maybe we should ask that question. Why hasn't Russia... Russia is hardly just learning this about Israel, right? Why do they not physically stop the Israelis before now? And given that now they have crossed the line of civilized nations and actually shot down 14, 15 Russian airmen in a barely disguised direct attack, Israel on Russia, what's Russia going to do about it? Well, first start, they're not going to trust Israel again. Israel has shot itself in the foot, but Israel, the Israelis are arrogant and think they can get away with anything because they've been so used to it. They're like a, really a super spoiled child who has been brought up to think that it can get away with absolutely everything, you know, and then obviously they're going to take, uh, take that as a given and do whatever the hell they want and expect that no one will say a word to them. Um, but they're, they don't realize, I mean, that's just pure stupidity and, and arrogance. Uh, Arrogance fueled stupidity, I suppose. Um, where they they won't know, or they don't know that there are lines that should not be crossed. That shouldn't be crossed, and that there are boundaries do exist, type thing, uh, and that you turn people against you, and they'll plot your downfall if you if you insult and abuse other people to to such an extent that ultimately they will start to plot your downfall. Um, but and of make, course, make, but if, Make real your but of course, existential paranoia that they're all out to get you. What's well, called a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Yeah. And Israel is the self-fulfilling example of self-fulfilling fulfilling prophecy par excellence, I suppose, on the on the world stage. You know, it's a lesson for everybody. If you ever want to know what that psychological term meant uh, as, it, as it plays out in amongst ordinary people, just look at what Israel is doing. You know, um, and you'll understand it. So, but um, yeah, obviously, Israel's not going to stop doing what it's doing. But after this, of course, the Russians won't be trusting the Israelis at all anymore, or they'll be making sure that they're, they double-check absolutely everything that the Israelis do. I mean, of course, the Israelis are, ho Israelis are hoping that this will basically keep the Russians away from uh, you know, spying on or trying to control anything the, Russian, the, the Israelis do. The Israelis hope that this will allow them, give them free reign to bomb wherever they want, that they've effectively intimidated Russia. They've scared Russia and say, listen, Russia, you probably should keep your damn pipelines and all that kind of stuff out of the way of us in case they get shot down again. Right. Um, will Russia take that? Probably not, because Israeli plans for Syria and the Middle East don't coincide with Russians, the, the, the plans that Russia has for the Middle East and the plans that they have been implementing in the, in the Middle East for the past three years. And they've, you know, spent a lot of time and effort and uh, lost quite a number of uh, military lives trying to achieve yeah. this goal, which is effectively to create peace in the Middle East, a kind of peace and a cohabitation amongst all the, the major players in the Middle East, uh, because that benefits Russia. It doesn't benefit Israel, like we've said this many times before, is that when someone uh, has uh, all the power, most of the power, they have nothing to gain from coming to a negotiating table and giving up some of that power. 
doing the right thing, doing the good thing. It doesn't. That's not part of Israel's lexicon. Doing the right thing or doing the good thing. That's why they never had a peace process or any anything any semblance of a real peace process with Palestinians. Why would they? Yeah. They have you know one and a half million Gazans in a prison camp, and they have the other two or three million Palestinians in the West Bank and in Israel under threat of summary imprisonment or execution or whatever. What what have they got to gain from from giving the Palestinians more freedom or or or, or agree, you know or, or meeting with them and actually having some kind of a proper peace process where you try and address the grievances of the Palestinians? Why would you just keep persecuting them? It's worked so far, right? Same applies to Syria. Same applies to the Russians. The Israelis don't want the Russians. Um, in the Golan Heights, brokering peace. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't necessarily want or they don't respect that as much as as they may have given, you know, given uh, lip, paid lip service to that. The Israelis always had the option of just those those that military, um, those military uh, piece artillery pieces and uh, missile launchers and stuff that they supposedly moved from the from near the Golan Heights, or from in the Golan Heights, uh, and, and push back. You know, got the one thousand Iranian personnel away from there. Mm -hmm. uh, Israel could just bomb them, like yeah, they don't see that as a favor well, just, that they will honor honor. In, but they don't have to pay anything back for it. Yeah, because it's like, well, thanks, but I didn't really need your help. Basically, I was quite happy just ramping up the rhetoric and pushing it to a point where uh, we could implement the Israelis could implement a final solution to their so-called Iranian problem. You know, I mean, they've been gunning for bombing Iran for like John McCain. You know, God rest his black <laughs> demonic soul. Uh, for for I don't know, well. It's, at least 10, 15 years, probably at least 10 years at this point, or more than 10 years, they've been bomb, 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 bomb Iran, you know. Uh, they, they want Iran gone. Uh, Israel primarily wants it gone, and America, because Israeli and American interests are inseparable, effectively, in the Middle East. Um, the only way so I can see... It's, it's spoiling the party, basically. It's spoiling the war party, you know, um, that Israel likes to have the ongoing, on you know, perpetually kind of taking over state of war, uh, Israel, it doesn't feel secure with peace is the problem. Israel does not feel secure with peace is the problem. Yeah. And it never will as long as the cycles uh, run Israel and as long as there's a significant percentage, perhaps a majority of the Israeli people who have been infected by that psychosis and that psychopathology of their leaders from uh, being, effectively being established as a as a, a race of persecuting people, people who persecute those around them. The history mm. of Israel is 70 years of the 70th anniversary this year, isn't it? Yes, it just passed. Uh, 70 years of, of tormenting other people and summarily shooting them and abusing them and killing children and imprisoning women. That's Israel. Then starting wars with your neighbors and taking pieces of the land, piece by piece. Um, it's a dirty, rotten little country. I can I can think of one possible because the psychopathy is one factor, but at the same time that we we know we have evidence that they have been able to think several moves ahead. 
and that they can see that crossing a line, well, next time will Russia hit us? The only possible logic I can see to that in this context is that it's a baiting of Russia right then. Next time we do this and your S-400s actually activate and shoot down our jets, we'll say, America, come help us. Maybe. I, we still have control of the U.S. military or we can call on it. And um, you know what I mean? It, it, or, or we'd ramp up at least reinvigorate the deflating rationale the it's United called, States has for being in the Middle East. Yeah. Well, it's called, we have to be there to protect Israel. Maybe. But I don't think that's going to happen. It's, Israel plays a game of chicken like psycho people, you know. The people game, play a game of chicken, you know. In, in a car or any kind of standoff like that will see who's willing to go the furthest, you know. Well, Israel is the one who, you know, in a game of chicken, the classic game, we're driving two cars towards each other. Israel is the one that'll always throw the pull the steering wheel off and throw it out the window first. Right. Um, because they're fundamentally unreasonable people and uh, they think they're entitled and fundamentally uh, have a fundamental sense of entitlement uh, to always get their way. Um, so I think they're the one, in this situation, they're basically staring Israel, staring Russia down mm-hmm. and putting it up to Russia and saying, listen, you know, we kind of accidentally shot down your plane there. You should probably keep your planes out of our way and not mess with us and do things as we want. You're not going to do anything about it, are you, Russia? Do something, Russia. What are you mm-hmm. going to do? You're not going to do anything. Go on. Jog on. Piss off, Russia. Mm-hmm. And Russia goes, eh, okay. What's Russia going to do? We're going to bomb Israel? It's not going to shoot down any, any uh, Israeli jets. Why not? Huh? Why not? Because that's uh, a state of war. So what? It's such a tiny country. Huh? It's such a tiny country. Well, but Israel has nukes. Right. But only in Israel. Well, they can reach... They can reach places. They can they can destroy them at least. Yeah. You, I mean, when you have that that stick holding it over someone's head, I mean, and if you're psycho enough, which Israel is, you're, you're going to use that. You're going to remind people... The so-called Samson. That I'm freaking crazy mm-hmm. and I will go there. You're such a nice country, Russia. You, you know, your government is so nice and you're all about the peace and stuff. You know, and Putin is such a peacemaker and he's trying to make peace in the Middle East. Well, you know what? I'll make a big freaking glass parking lot out of the place. And if I go down with it, then fair enough. Yeah, what do you say to that, Russia? How does that figure into your peace plans? Well, okay, well, shut the hell up about peace. It's not about peace. Israel is under a perpetual existential uh, threat in the Middle East. So it has every right to dictate terms to everybody else. If it doesn't get its way, I'm going to blow it all up. How do you deal with someone like that? I have no idea. It's, an, it's a pretty impossible situation. No. Yeah. Yeah. Carefully, careful with your words, your actions. I mean, it's... it's not, you have to have a lot of tolerance as well because you would when antagonized and pushed and subjected to that kind of pathological you, thinking you enough, you would feel like and, pushing your own red button and, and saying, oh, okay, oh, well, oh okay, well, and, well, you know what, we'll just solve this problem. You can't, Boom, bye-bye Israel. You can't fool them. No, because there's, they, there's no because they, supreme partners. strategy that they can't see through. Or they don't suspect. They'll suspect everything that you're doing. Yeah. That when you say we, want, we just want the best for you, Israel, they think <clears> you want the worst for us. How do you deal with someone like that? Yeah. It's, usually that kind of a person would just be 
isolated or sidelined from any community, international, local, whatever, they should be pushed away and set up. Put crazy. on that iceberg over there. Yeah, and, and left they're to, crazy. Yeah. But the problem is that they've got nuclear weapons and a lot of influence and a lot of reach. So we're, the whole world is being effectively held to ransom by, yeah. by nutty Israel. Yeah. And that's also seen in the fact that you cannot criticize Israel. Exactly. Because I mean, uh, that's anti-Semitism. Well, it's been set up since, apparently, since the Second World War. Um, and the Nazis, you know, I mean, since then, that's it. That's their, that's their red line and nobody's allowed to say a word about them. And it, it, it basically, you, I have to be allowed to do whatever the hell I want or you're a disgusting, reprehensible human being and no one will talk to you and you'll be fired from your job or you'll be just, you'll be... And, and the rest of the world apparently goes along with it. You know, AIDS and abets that kind of extremely bad behaviour extremely pathological behavior, which is bizarre. You know, I don't, I don't get it. I mean, not exactly the control they have in, in, in countries, you know, I mean, they obviously have a lot of control or that mm -hmm. control has spread. Whether or not they have to exert direct control or whether the meme of anti-Semitism has spread and has embedded itself so deeply in the consciousness of so many people around the world that people now themselves are the ones who are, who are supporting Israel with their you know, oh, I'm not an anti-Semitic. I love Israel. I would never say a bad thing about, about Israel because I'm not anti-Semitic. I, I would never want to be called anti-Semitic because I love Israel. Yeah. And when Israel kills children, well, it's just, that's unfortunate, but I'm not anti-Semitic. So I'm not saying anything about that. Yeah. I have no comment to make on that. I mean, people who will, you know, censor themselves and censor their own conscience because of a meme of anti-Semitism, it's absolutely bizarre, you know. The whole thing is just, crazy and how it actually got to this point is it's, yeah. it's complete madness like I said it's a sickness yeah. that has taken hold of people and um, I'm not sure what the if there is any way out of you know also last Monday which you noticed um, in Israeli press reports on the Tuesday which made sense in hindsight the Israelis um, marked the 30th anniversary of the launching of their own military satellites off Tel or something. They have a whole bunch of them up there by publishing photos from one of these satellites showing close-up shots of the president's palace in Damascus, Damascus International Airport, and one other site. I'm not sure what it was. Yep. Which even the press reports publishing these photos said... It looks like this is a direct threat from our government. You know, uh, and your comment was the gloves are off. I, like this, this is Israel's way of being explicit and saying it was always about and still is very much about decapitating that regime yeah. in Syria. If you want to know the way Israel works, I mean, it's not the only country that works that way, but it's quite explicitly explicit about the way it works that way. It's, it's you know, the classic situation where you know, some mafia boss mm -hmm. uh, doesn't like what you're doing or if you refuse what the mafia boss wants, they just send you a letter with uh, your family tree on it. Yeah. And that's it. They don't say anything. They just send you a copy of your family tree. Yeah. And they sign it and you know who it's from. You want this line to continue. Well, that's that's what Israel is doing. That's what that's, that's the equivalent. What they did with the, with the, with the satellite photos of, uh, of the presidential palace or Assad's mm -hmm. residence, effectively. Is, is is exactly that, uh, so and it's you know it's it's in movies and stuff as you know this is what the bad guy always does right it's the baddies that always do that kind of thing send you a copy of your family tree that's the exactly, criminal mind thinks right. this up so it, 
Right, exactly. And it's in all, it's in popular culture. That's, those are bad people, fundamentally bad people, quintessentially, archetypally bad people. Mm. And that's what Israel did the other day. So what's your conclusion? Pick a side, you know, goodies or baddies, who do you support? Um, so I don't know, that might be oversimplified, but obviously it was a clear threat to, uh, and it was a message to Russia, basically. And the bottom line is, is that Israel has its trump card no pun intended, uh, that it will, at any point, it can choose to decapitate the Syrian regime itself. Yeah. And it has the, the capabilities to do that. And it is only pandering to Russia's wishes uh, out of, you know, out of consideration for Russia's interests in the region. But that only goes so far. We consider your, your interests, and you, but you have to consider ours first and foremost. Uh, so the Israelis think that they have the Russians over a barrel in that respect, mm. where, the Russian, where the Israelis are saying, listen, Russia, I know you've done a lot of work in the Middle East and you can, uh, you've changed a lot of things over the past few years, but we can just turn it all to shit in one night. So uh, keep, that, has, it has, keep that in mind. Well, it has to be on our terms. Everything that happens has to be on our terms. And if we don't like anything that's happening, we reserve the right to intervene, and there's nothing you or anybody else can do to stop us. One other detail from that chain, tragic chain of events. Um, what about the initial Russian report of detecting missiles launched from the French frigate, the Auvergne, during all of that? The scurrilous, godless, faggy French. <laughs> Do we uh, have the sensors beep? <laughs> or <laughs> get it going? And that's referring to at least the. I mean, that's referring to the French government. Uh, that is, or the powers that prevailed within the French government at least the past ten years or so, and no, no better exemplified by Macron. Uh, they're they're in Syria. Uh, they're kind of hand in hand in hand with the Americans, hanging out in Derizor. And down, and there's evidence of this um, actually Al-Tanf. down in Al Tanf in this base below, but also in the Derizor area where the where the Americans have uh, a base. And Derizor is actually one of the only few, one of the very few places left where ISIS still have a presence, right beside the Americans and the French. And there's there was a story there, um, guy on Twitter actually, um, France 24 journalist actually uh, drew attention to a picture that was released. Um, was released by the U.S. Special Ops Joint Task Force in Iraq and Syria last Wednesday, I think, and they immediately removed it uh, from their. I think they had it. I, don't know, I think it was on their website. This guy grabbed it basically because it showed American soldiers, you know, supposedly uh, supporting um, supporting you know anti-ISIS fighters, whatever the, uh, they called it, in in Syria near in the Derizor region. And in the background, the SDF. Yeah, right. And in in, in the background, there's a picture of a, a French, um, right. I saw that. A French uh, armored personnel carrier, basically, um, an, an army vehicle. Basically, it was. Um, I think it's called uh, Aravis Infantry Mobi- Mobility Vehicle. Uh, it's in the background behind the behind the American troops. So the Frenchies are there, hanging out with the Americans and with ISIS in Syria um, and the scurrilous part of it is is that as soon as I mean the the Russians announced 
when the plane was shot down as part of their uh, satellite and radar data as to what actually happened. They said that the French, a French frigate in the in the sea off, off Syria had fired missiles all around the same time. And of course the French government in response to that immediately said that is absolutely not true. We had absolutely nothing to do with this whatsoever. Didn't they additionally offer their help with retrieving wreckage? Yeah, I mean... I think apparently the Russians said, yeah, no thanks. Yeah, I would like... I don't know, I would be launching nukes at that point. It's just as well, I'm not... I'm not... Uh, I don't have my hand on a, a nuclear trigger because Paris would be dust after that. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so just the fact that they immediately and categorically dismissed it and... and the Russians are like, well, well, you want to see the radar data that you fired some missiles? Why are you saying you didn't fire any? What's wrong with you, you chicken? So it's like the, the image of the French there is like, you know, standing behind their Israeli friend, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, there's really bully, you know, standing, looking over shoulders, saying, yeah, yeah, take that, Russia, take that, Syria, yeah. And then whenever Russia glares at France, it's like they, they fucking shit their pants, you know. Yeah. A big load of pee runs down their leg and they run away. Uh, that's, that's the image of France today uh, as, as, as represented by the French government especially Macron. Uh, so it's not very honourable. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I, I would question how any French person today could have any um, sense of pride in their, in their country as it's represented by, by the Macron government and the, the cabal of psychos who, are, who have been, you know, have pushed it in a particular direction. Mm -hmm. uh, since since nine eleven since, since nine eleven and since, since, since Chirac basically yeah. left joining NATO and all that kind of stuff, uh, it's pathetic. You know, it's funny how you know when you join a big team and you think you join the winning team, it brings out the worst in you. It brings out the most pusillanimous aspects of your character. That should be sign that you're maybe made the wrong that you haven't really joined the strongest team. You've joined the worst team, and they joined that team really in a longer time scale, right at its death, right, and possibly the death of a all things. We'll see how badly the, it goes, but you know what I mean? It's NATO's waning time. Yeah. And it seems to be the strongest winning team at the death, and France jumps on board with that. Well, yeah. they, they did get the term collaborationist as a dirty word for good reason. Yeah. Um, on a different subject, but it also, of course, plugs into this, the, the terror attack in Iran mm. on Saturday um, in Avaz in the southwest of Iran, Totally brazen. You've probably seen videos of it online. We won't even show any more of that. Um, 29 dead, I believe, at this point. 70 wounded. It was a military parade commemorating the 30th anniversary of the end of the Iran-Iraq war. Parades were taking place across the country. So there were no big government officials at this one. They were up in Tehran. Um, totally brazen. Guys dressed up as Iranian troops participating in the parade and as um, police officers opened fire on the crowd, primarily, I think. I think half the victims were civilians. children, civilians, um, families watching. And the other half were military personnel taking part in the parade. Um, a separatist group. It is, it is actually a group existing in Iran, the Patriotic Arab Democratic Movement based in Avaz, apparently. A claim of responsibility on their part was 
was put out there, but then they actually made an actual statement said we don't nothing to do with this whatsoever. Right. In any event, there's no fooling Tehran on this. They've already pointed the finger abroad. Um, obviously, this is foreign interests. Pointed the finger Saudi Arabia. Um, and the US. calling the US, uh, the UAE. They've recalled ambassadors demanding satisfaction, which of course well, they won't get. Well, it's um, interesting that, that they. I mean, they picked three countries uh, envoys to to, yeah. to summon the UK, the Dutch, and the Danish. Yeah, why? Uh, I'm no, I I can't. I, I don't know why they picked those three countries to summon the, the ambassadors to those three countries to in in, in Tehran to. Um, well, to the rationale to, I've read is that those three accusing those those three countries of harboring Iranian opposition groups. And they probably do have a lot of Iranian emigres Why not based France? in those countries. France and the MEK, right. Primarily. Well, I was wondering if they weren't actually, for some reason, they just picked those three. Maybe yeah, maybe there's something particular about those three countries and, and their links to this, to, to who, the people who carry this out. But, I mean, they captured at least two, one or two of the attackers um, right. alive. One shot their three. So... <coughs> No maybe, squeeze answers that him. Well, they know, maybe know where that person is from, have, have a reading the situation. And I wonder if they weren't presenting some information to those three countries, you know? Why those three countries, I don't know. But to think that, um, you know, if they had some information as to, as to their, that back, to back up the claims that this wasn't just some internal Iranian kind of group that had launched an attack, that this was basically funded from or, you know, organized in some way or other from abroad. And it was an external, effectively, attack attack from, from abroad on on Iran. Uh, that If they have evidence to back that up, then that would be possibly interesting to maybe countries or envoys from countries that they thought might be uh, sympathetic or that they could put pressure on, you know. Um. Yeah, countries that might be sympathetic to not most sympathetic to not uh, imposing sanctions. You know, who knows what what kind of leverage they might want? Right. They might want to as in use you, as, if you're serious about protecting the Iran deal, which is good for your companies. Hint, hint. You'll get behind us on this at least publicly, if not behind the scenes, mm-hmm. and help us to mm-hmm. you know yeah. stop this kind of thing from happening. If not, actually expose the perpetrators. Yeah. On the same day, this is yesterday, Saturday. Um, Oh, Jesus, they've had a few of these over the years. They did another one of these major glossy shindigs, this time in New York, um, mm. where Rudolph Giuliani, I call him Giuliani, the ghoul, he's such a puppet. What is he doing? He's been so adamantly lobbying on behalf of this group. He gets up there and he gives a speech. Um, formerly, this is for... A, a summit held in New York by the Organization of Iranian American Communities, which is an MEK front. Um, he's up there saying, I don't know when we're going to overthrow them. It could be a few days, a few months, a couple of years, but it's going to happen. They're going to be overthrown. The people of Iran have obviously had enough. The sanctions are working. The currency is going to nothing. These are the conditions that lead to successful revolution. Right, which kind of ties him and America directly to that attack because mm-hmm. he comes out and says that one day after or even the same time but or yeah. around the same day maybe that it happened and he's obviously saying this when he says the Iranian people have had enough he's using this terror attack 
against the in, inside Iran that killed 29 people to justify or to explain his claim that the Iranian people have had enough. He's saying this is evidence that, you know, the Iranian people, quote-unquote, are taking up arms well, against the, the system or the government or the Iranian mullahs or whatever by attacking the military. No. Um, but possibly, but in his mind, yeah. What he's no, doing, he's, he's stitching together two, the two other separate prongs to which Iran is being attacked. One of them is naked aggression like this. The other one is the economic sanctions, which have been going on for so long, and now they're about to be tightened further still by November 4th, right? There, remember the word protests in Iran. There have been many over the years, but there was a big wave of them in January, which created a spasm of support and among the Twitterati in the West. Oh, support the Iranians. They want to just free the women from the hijab. But at root, really, it was they were genuine protests at rising prices because the sanctions were biting. That's what he means when he says the sanctions are working. Mm. It's working to create protests. Avaz was one of the major cities where, in fact, it was particularly uh, heated there. It's a distant from Tehran. I think it's, yeah, it's suffering on more. It's from, on the coast of Iraq. Right. It's suffering more from the sanctions. And Avaz was a hotbed of anti-government protests right. back in January. Right. So he's using this attack supposedly by an Avaz group <laughs> to, to, that, that attacked the military to, to justify, to say, you see... The people are up in arms. Oh, they're reacting. Literally up yeah. in arms. They're literally taking up arms and right. shooting, okay. shooting uh, Iranian, attacking Iranian military parades. And that's how America goes about. He says, we will, you know, we, what, what did he say? We will. Uh, the sanctions. We are, will have a coup, he said. We will. The sanctions. We will overthrow working. them. We will overthrow them. God willing. We will overthrow them. So he's saying America will overthrow them on the day that America or its allies and or its allies had a hand in carrying out a mass shooting terror attack in Iran, i.e. he's saying that that is the means by which America goes about creating, uh, you know, setting up or um, carrying out coups in foreign countries. And of course we know that's the case. That's how America has gone about setting up coups. It basically funds groups within countries to carry out to start mass protests, often nearly always violent in some way, uh, up to and including armed revolutionary movements who are funded and trained and armed by America yeah. and its allies to overthrow, to start a, a revolution, quote-unquote, and to institute a coup. Uh, yeah, so that's, that's, that's why I'm a bit worried about this. I, I know it's been going off and on for 10 years where Iran's on the precipice, you know, since the, the so-called Green Revolution during elections in 2009. But, yeah, I'm worried because it reminds me of how Libya and Syria both started. There were mass shootings directed against police and soldiers and then spun as an up uprising in the West and it just all went to hell. But it took sustained effort from that moment. You mm -hmm. can't just have a one-off. Right. So we'll see, we have to see how that, this one's going to play out. There's going to be a succession of them here. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm worried as well because his, his allusion to the sanctions working, they do bite. Iran's been dealing with them pretty amazingly successfully for a couple of decades, but they're going to be squeezed ever tighter now. Um, yeah, well, they they well, do eat away back. at a country's resolve. 
and yeah, the yeah. people's resolve. Well, they can combine the two, you know. They, the sanctions have been imposed in, in August this year and then another round are in, in November and the US State Department and the US government is working hard to kind of get everybody on board. Japan, I think, just announced that it was stopping purchasing yeah. uh, oil from Iran. So if they can get to this point where they can squeeze a country through sanctions economically and then at the same time, that's the gunpowder effectively, and then at the same time they foment uh, groups within the country or train, arm, fund, or facilitate groups in the country to start a kind of a shooting war, to start shooting police and start start a revolution on the back at the right time, at, at a point where uh, people in Iran are suffering because of external sanctions. So first of all, you squeeze them economically, and then you start shooting them. Yeah. Now, I was asked about this earlier this week, you know, and on, on Sputnik where I said, you know, all things being equal long term, it's still good for Iran. Um, they just need to keep doing what they're doing and kind of like Russia, just absorb the insults or deflect them away as best they can and not react rashly. Um, keep building trade ties, where they fall with maybe European conglomerates to build infrastructure projects, China can step in, or Russia. It's probably only a second best because they would ideally like to benefit from the protection that long-term Western contracts would afford a country that is in dire need of, of, of building up to maximum capacity, to give people the jobs they need and to prevent, you know, mass uprising from the point of view of people being hungry. Um, I mean, and you talk about you talk about Russia or, or China stepping in to kind of help uh, as one example of, of someone who can help Iran uh, uh, under the under the under the that's under U.S. sanctions. Uh, well, Iran this week, <clears throat> of course, or not Iran. China this week was was hit with uh, the U.S. imposed sanctions. On China this week, because uh, because it was buying Russian weapons. Yeah, because it was buying Russian arms from Rosoboron Export, uh, yeah. Russian arms manufacturer, and so America sanctions Russia, and actually sanctions China, sanctions a Chinese um, uh, Beijing's defense procurement agency, the Equipment Development Department. Uh, it sanctioned it for significant transactions with Russian arms exporters. Um, so while America is sanctioning <clears throat> Iran, sanctioning Syria, sanctioning Yemen, sanctioning a bunch of African countries, <clears throat> and sanctioning China at the same time, so America is sanctioning everybody and starting an attempt... And effectively sanctioning Europe. <clears throat> right. And attempting to start a revolution in Iran while carrying on a covert jihadi proxy war in Syria. So when do we get to nuke America? <coughs> <coughs> Who's we, Western man? Uh, me and Russia. <laughs> um, well, this is the thing. They're, they're too nice. If if the goal is peace and stability, who? Well, we the they're too yeah. nice. They the Russians, the Chinese, they just don't do that, right? They don't have that within their 
within their interests, never mind their moral, you know, considerations. Within their interests, China's like we want to make money, so we can't make money if the place is in smolders. Yeah, we could, you know, hypothetically a few decades hence, but we want to do it now. Can we just bypass all that stuff? Um, so it's in their fundamental interest to not aggravate any given situation. That's why their bottom line, whatever develops, maybe a situation in Iran gets worse. Then they say, right, just, just let's just hold it here and not worsen it. Mm. But they're up against the kind of mentality you outlined earlier that will go to the wall. It's had fire to places. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's why I'm. I, I, it's building up to kind of going for the jugular with respect to Iran. Um, although, again, I don't think... Um, much as they portray them as mad mullahs and stuff like that, they're not. And for example, oh, they're going to shut down the Straits of Hormuz, which would crash the world economy. They're not really. They have, there's no evidence that they are actually uh, going to take these kinds of actions. I mean, Rouhani said after this a terror attack, um, pretty much what I would expect him to say that Iran is. Look, we're not going to abandon. He described all of this going on between the sanctions and the actual terror attack. It's an economic and psychological war against Iran. Mm -hmm. We're not going to abandon our defensive weapons, nor will we reduce our defense capabilities. Iran continues to increase its power day by day. The fact that they, the West, Israel, are very angry at our missiles shows that these are the most influential weapons Iran has. That's... What I was going to say was, I see this. This is kind of also a game of chicken, mm-hmm. and the game of chicken is that Trump's bet is that he can force Iran to stand down before it requires some kind of threshold level of uh, strategic deterrence, such that it would be in a position like the way Russia did at a kind of much at a bigger scale when it announced these new weapons on March first. Mm-hmm. It it had reset after three decades. Uh, an Im- fundamental imbalance where the U.S. probably would have done better in a first-strike nuclear war. Russia might have been able to respond a bit, but the U.S. would have come out of it uh, the better off, I suppose. But it, uh, in this case, um, I think Iran is quite close to, and maybe no one knows quite where that line is or what exactly defines it, but close to achieving a situation where it's too late beyond that to really go for the juggler and decapitate the Iranian regime mm-hmm. because it would sink X numbers of U.S. ships. It could hit Israel badly or wipe it off mm-hmm. the map. Mm-hmm. Again, Israel's own doing, not their intention. That's why they need an internal, they need a covert So there's, there's a kind of a, a an exponential increase in the efforts to do something about Iran in the rhetoric. Not directly. But not directly. Um, before that threshold... Yeah. is met. And uh, I think I think that something in the ballpark of of that is is what we saw play out with North Korea. Mm. You remember it was escalating and escalating sanctions, rhetoric, um all the way up and up. Um, everyone was talking about imminent nuclear Armageddon or the risk of it, and it suddenly was peace. But what happened there? Well, it, the the peace stuff came after North Korea goes, "Okay, we finished now. We finished testing. We're happy. We got it." Mm. They basically reached some kind of deterrence threshold where the cost of going in and doing something like regime change the benefits. was higher. Hmm. So Iran is probably close to it, and it just needs to hold the line, hold the line, and reach it. Thereafter, all this stuff could quite quickly just go 
def- be deflated, mm. and hence the urgency to do it now yeah. before. But um, but we can put our faith in uh, this the Q phenomenon. You know the Q phenomenon. Q. It rings a bell. Quanon Q anonymous, because uh, he, she, it, they, z, zer, uh, said that predicted that there would be a turnaround on the Iran thing under Trump. That Trump, part of Trump's uh, process of saving everybody's arse from the swamp was that he was going to have a reset basically on Iran and that uh, it would be all peace and love towards Iran. Just like... and, and What reason, is this guy, some kind of prophet? Uh, I think he's Jesus. <laughs> a cyber Jesus. Cyber Jesus. Um, but it doesn't strike me. I mean, the the reason for giving credence to this thing is because supposedly it also predicted a kind of reset or you know a, a turning, a change in tune towards North Korea, mm-hmm. which happened with Trump. Uh, it happened in spite of Trump. Well, actually, it happened in spite of Trump, possibly. Mm-hmm. But that's where they get it totally wrong, and people who yeah. believe it just have no clue what they're talking about. Actually, people who are people who are into it are obviously they're kind of like I think it's kind of like it's, it, it's fundy Christianity for poli- for political people interested in politics I tell you what yes fundy, fundy geopolitics basically where it's just like praise Jesus and instead of Jesus praise Trump and, and whatever emerges is God wills it yeah exactly God will I told you though I told you months so, ago so, God willed exactly the scenario so that's it's that level of you know just oversimplified stupid uh, geopolitical analysis that people actually think I think that actually passes with a lot of people because they themselves have no clue how it actually works then it can make sense to them in an oversimplified kind of way and then they run on to the next one but um, mm-hmm. but I don't see any evidence that uh, Iran is that uh, Iran is uh, is are going to become America's friends or anybody's, anybody's well, friends in the West basically um, no, no, not in any deep sense not in any soon but, but remember what happened in North Korea once something snapped behind the scenes, oh shit, they've reached, okay. And then the first entreaties of, of, of peace were the meetings of the North Korean, the South Korean, mm. not the leader, but his sister at the South Korean Winter Games mm. early last year. And that then led to exchanging of letters and ideas. Then there was a big summit and then Trump meets. But... So that all happened in spite of Trump. Trump, if anything, if he did help bring peace to the, the, the Korean Peninsula, is by increasing this, the um, the the rhetoric of it to mm. such an amplitude that the South went. You know okay, what? That's a bit freaky. Let's just be friends. Wrap this up. Yeah, exactly. Um, and similarly, so it was despite Trump, and it had nothing to do with Trump. Trump didn't affect the turnaround on North Korea. It was because he was basically gunning for you know. And kind of nuke them and it's you're gonna fire and brimstone and all this kind of nonsense that like you said it spoke the south koreans to the point when said hang on america you know we live here as well you know so cut that shit out basically and it was the fact that south korea the fact that trump couldn't get south korea on board with its belligerent rhetoric that south korea wasn't willing to take one for america basically yeah yeah we'll go down in, 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 a, in a ball of flame for you america the south koreans are like what the fuck? these people are crazy they're our neighbours. They're basically the same people as us. 
Uh, so piss off. And so when America realized that they didn't have South Korea on board, they were like, well, there's not much we can do about that now, you know, basically, because that, that can cause a lot of problems. We don't want to, South Korea is our ally. We don't want to lose them, basically, trying to get North Korea. So let's just be friends with North Korea. Okay, so in a heartbeat, you switch it over and say, yeah, North Korea is fine. So Trump just was told to say, yeah, say that North Korea is fine now, that you're not angry at the little fat kid anymore, that he's your friend, and you think you can do some great things with him. And these people think that, that Trump is like some kind of like, you know, freaking, you know, anti-deep state warrior and stuff. And that he, that, they they that think that that's that what he, he intended, that, that's, that was the outcome that he really intended. That's the kind of magical thinking that Q and these people are, are pushing. Trump has very few qualities that are admirable or, or worth kind of praising. The only ones are that he's not some kind of Washington insider, not some kind of deep stater type thing. Um, and he probably, to a greater extent than most presidents in the last 30 or 40 years, actually has some good intentions towards his demographic and the people that voted for him. And he wants to fulfill some of his campaign promises as they relate to those people in America. As far as, as, far as foreign policy and stuff goes, he's a big... I revert back to him, what the lefties call him, which is a big orange blowhard and he has no idea what he's doing. Right. So get off the Trump shtick. You know, yes, he's he's not he's not a deep state or Washington insider establishing candidate basically who's just gonna do the do the bidding of the higher ups basically. But he is an but, American and as Putin says, how do you deal with people who can't tell the difference between Austria and Australia? Exactly. Because he's American, so, he's basically an idiot. Yeah. Sorry, Scotty. We, we love Americans. We love most Americans. You know, we are good people. But, yeah, when it comes to, like, sorting other people's problems out, you might want to start with sorting out problems at home first. Your own. Why don't you just leave everybody else alone? So, you take, accept some visitors, whatever, they can go to Disney World and stuff. So, keep the Disney Worlds going. Uh, you know, McDonald's, Big Macs, McDonald's, that kind of thing, Coca-Cola. It's all great. Visitors love that. But that's pretty much all were interested in from America. Thanks very much. Y'all could just stay over there and leave everybody else alone. Is that too much to ask? So that's why I say there is, as crazy as it is with respect to Iran right now, it's possible that there could be a, a stabilization or a desisting of the efforts. But right now, it is all going for the jugular. Um, but it, it could it could turn well, we quite quickly. But, I don't think, I don't, how do you see a, a stabilization or a, in Iran? I mean, it's just, we're right in the middle of, between two rounds of sanctions. Second round hasn't fully been, fully imposed yet. And there's no sign that anybody is standing up to the sanctions. So sanctions are crippling. If they're implemented fully, it's going to be serious problems for Iran. Iran is going to suffer seriously. And when uh, a country like that is down, what its enemies do is kick it. What its enemies in the West, America and Israel do is kick it. So, well, I mean, it's... It, I say I, that because that was the situation North Korea found itself in a year ago. North Korea is a totally different situation. Yeah? Well, yeah, when it's not in the Middle East for a start. Yeah. It doesn't have its Israel. You know? I mean, that could, in theory, play out with Iran, but not because of the so many... because of the other variables. Uh, and, and, I mean, you know, I mean, the, for, for all... For all the years that North Korea was part of the acts of evil and stuff, there was very little actually done to North Korea or it wasn't targeted. North Korea is like over freaking, you know, the far end of Asia, basically. You know what I mean? It's, it's not 
Well, it was front. almost wiped off the map in a war that formerly never ended. No, way back years ago. I'm talking about today, now, yeah. today. I mean, since it's been the member of the Axis of Evil, since the, since the war on terror started, that's all it, all, all it got was basically, you know, a member, is a member of the Axis of Evil. In terms of the attention it got, it got very little attention, very little interference and that kind of stuff, you know. Obviously, there were sanctions imposed on it, but it didn't really seem to have much effect on it. It's right on the border with China, all that kind of stuff. It's a totally different situation from, like, Iran, uh, in the Middle East and the attention it gets from Israel and the potential that Iran has along with making other partnerships in the Middle East with um, with Russia and Syria and Iraq whatever has the potential to basically undo or to deal a serious blow to to American power and influence in, in the world mm-hmm. I mean North Korea never had that that potential you know yeah. therefore it's not in the same category at all you know okay. Yeah, the the Americans learned the hard way that Iran is an, a bit of an immovable object. Mm-hmm. Um, in the course of the two wars, Afghanistan and Iraq, mm-hmm. what was the one thing they kept complaining about all those years? And yet they complained on, on the one hand, but then they were also using that influence on the other. Specifically that Iran is such a big country there, it could help them or hinder them in Afghanistan and Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um so I, I think that might also account for the, the difference in approaches in Washington about Iran. That's why John Kerry um, is still keeping a hand in for the other side, the side that negotiated and agreed to, in principle, the Iran deal in 2015. Mm-hmm. They're like, no, no, we should keep this. But why? If, if, if Israel is, you know, the U.S. wrapped around his finger, especially in the Middle East, why would the U.S. can take seriously consider and sign off on the, the JCPOA at all. I think it comes down to a, a two different approaches in managing the situation. Mm. One is like, let Iran develop, but we keep, we're signing on at the beginning of that process. And the I other mean, one is like, no, do not even let them. We, we, as we mentioned at a time when, the, when Trump opposed the sanctions uh, or backed out of the JCPOA, uh, you notice the time Notice the time when the JCPOA was signed yeah. by Obama. It was 2015, July 2015. Yeah. What was the state of play at that point in time? Was everybody, including Israel and everybody, was expecting that ISIS was going to roll over Damascus. Three months later, two months later, uh, Russia entered fray and totally changed the situation. And that's why Trump totally changed the situation. Uh, as far as the Iran deal was concerned, and all this talk about a super bad deal, blah blah blah. The only reason it was a bad deal is because Russia had in, in, intervened in the in the preceding three years. It became a bad deal. The JCPOA became a bad deal because Russia entered into the conflict in Syria, yeah. and that's why America backed out of it. It was a good ta- it was a good deal in 2015. After Russia intervened in Syria, suddenly it became a bad deal. Yeah. Although that doesn't account for why Kerry is risking, technically risking um, his retirement. He's an effing, he's an effing has-been, that's why. Why, why is he risking um, Im- imprisonment? He, he won't be, but um, by... Imprisonment? Yeah, by conducting shadow diplomacy, which is basically the opposite of what the U.S. government is advocating. It's around policy. He's going and meeting... But it's, but it's not illegal, right? He's, an, he's a private individual. Is, is that against sanctions to it, meet to meet with anybody? It is Iran? if you're advocating the opposite to what the government policy is. Um, I think Kerry has enough connections to make sure he's 
Right, but for him and the connections he's speaking on behalf of, why do they still, the Iran deal, still see it as thing, something to keep and work for? I don't know what connections he's speaking on behalf of, and it may be to do with actual his own business interests. Maybe. John Kerry's own business interests. But John Kerry is, I mean, he's skull and bones, deep state, that guy's... Yeah. Kerry, Heinz, I mean, that's... <laughs> he's ketchup, that's what he is. <laughs> okay. He's a load of ketchup. Uh, no, he's. I think he's out of the out of the, out of the equation. You know, really. I mean, I don't know to what extent people who are in former administrations still keep their hand in, and some of them may do. But I think most of the people who keep their hand in, 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 in terms of exerting significant influence on every administration, you don't really know who those people are. You know. Yeah. Um, but we wrap it up here for this week. Yes. Um, I want to end it on a happy note. Go on. If we can call it a happy note. Claudia, I want you to play a minute or so of this next video. This is um, the two Korean leaders met this week. It was the first visit by a South Korean leader to the North ever, oh, since the country was split. Um, they, Kim Jong-un and Moon Jae-in, they both jointly addressed a crowd of 150,000 people at the giant sports stadium in Pyongyang. Um, we obviously won't understand what they're saying unless it's been translated, interpreted. Go ahead and play it there. We'll just watch a bit of that. Right, live to Pyongyang, where you see uh, Kim Jong-un speaking, addressing 150,000 people gathered at the stadium. Let's listen to him. North Korean fellow citizens here. President Moon Jae-in and myself um, had been able to have been able to make another accomplishment today um, that will be an important milestone in the history of South and North Korea in the future. This is a precious another step that we have taken. Uh, the passion and enthusiasm of uh, South Korean President Moon Jae-in deserves a deep respect from myself and North Koreans. Okay, we'll leave it there. Um, Kim then gave way and uh, Moon Jae-in gave a speech about how we're all brothers and sisters, and the crowd loved it. So, I mean, that's that's going... You can't put that back in and, the bottle now. Yeah, and contrast that with scumbag America threatening to, to wipe it out. Yeah. These ordinary people who have been artificially divided for like 50 years or more. More than 50 years. Anyway, um, by Western kind of global interests, Leading to hegemony and controlling most of the world as possible, and and half of the people suffered for quite a long time, and now they want to make friends, and because in the part in the process of them attempting to reconcile and make friends, America stepped in for a while there and threatened to 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 wipe out hundreds of thousands of them. What do you say about America in, in that equation? Yeah, I know I did. They they can't come out of it looking good. All The best they can do to retain the self-image that they've successfully projected for so long is to, to 
to poo-poo that kind of thing by saying, oh, but hang on a second, North Korea hasn't lived up to any of its commitments, it still has nuclear weapons, yada, yada, and try to downplay that kind of thing. But that's fine for a Western audience. You, you can, you know, um, not show them those kinds of images and instead replace it with, you know, doubts and suspicions and so alleged infringements by the North Koreans. But the point is, within Korea, that's being beamed out across the two populations. There's yeah. no going back from it now. And everybody loves it. Yeah. And why is America, why is, uh, when they say, Americans say, well, well, hang on, North Korea hasn't lived up to its commitments, its commitments in what? Uh, made in... Its commitments to do what? To do, do denuclearize. Yeah, and why would it, why, why would it not, why, why should it not have nuclear weapons? Because nukes are bad. Why? Because they're dangerous. What do you mean they're dangerous? I know, but well, this is it. Well, hang on a minute. There's been nukes around for, for what, for 70, 70, 80 years. And they've been used by one country. Right. So the threat, the threat, the problem is that we can't let other countries get nukes because they might use them because they're crazy and they might use them. Mm -hmm. Well, hang on a minute. Who used nukes in the history of nuclear weapons? Who used nukes on a, on a civilian population? The U.S. and possibly Israel in Yemen or somewhere else. No, I don't think it was nukes. Uh, but anyway, yeah, it was America. Yeah. So does anybody see a problem with that? No. And does anybody then see that, well, it's unreasonable to just state outright that all these these countries, you know, specified countries and say that they can't have nukes and them t attempting to get nukes is uh, a cause of potential cause of conflict that we might have to intervene and bomb the crap out of them because they're trying to get nukes. Mm -hmm. uh, because if they get nukes, they'll use them. Well, how do you know they're going to use them? Why would you think they would use them? I mean, this argument has been made, obviously, multiple times. By, by by many, many people. But it doesn't make any sense to say that a country who wants to get nukes would automatically use them. Countries coming late in the game. You know, Russia has 7,000, America has 5,000, Israel has at least 400, you know, the UK has dozens or 100 and something, you know, India, Pakistan. Um, who? China. So if, if North Korea gets nukes, who are they going to use them against? No one. That isn't the point, though. What I mean, is the point? Know that. But that's their point. Yeah. That's but it's a bullshit point, obviously, no? Yes. yes and the same with Iran, obviously. Because yes. who's Iran going to use nukes against? against? Unless it's got a death wish, obviously. Because you can come late in the game and all these countries have decades uh, of, of possession of nukes, testing of nukes, uh, development of nuclear, nuclear capabilities and the delivery systems. And you're just coming late in the game to get your one or two nukes. And you think you're going to use them, what, to blow up the world, to kill all your enemies? So, like, you know, it's, uh, th that's, the, that's, that's the, the rationale. That's yeah. what they're going to do. They're going to use these nukes to kill all their enemies with, like... Yeah. But, but that isn't it, of course. It's, it's... No, but that is the dominant narrative that keeps yeah. flying. And that's the reason, like you said, to people in the West, that's, that, that narrative flies with people. That's the rationale, apparently, yeah. that gets people to support, you know, yeah, Trump should nuke North Korea because it's going to get nukes because it might use... When it doesn't make any sense at all. It's, it's such a, 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 a failure of rudimentary thinking and, and, and basic logic that it just blows my mind, that it actually flies and the media repeats it. And nobody ever wonders then, nobody ever gets to the point where they say, well, that's a load of bullshit. That's obviously not the case. No, no Iran and North Korea aren't going to use their nukes. So why would they not want, what other reason do they have then for not wanting those countries to have nukes? And then that opens the door to a reality for you. Yeah. But no one wants to go there. It's the equivalent of two plus two equals four. And most human beings aren't even at that level.
they're, yeah, and they're also on the winning team. The, the West is the best. And it probably, um, unless they're prepared to really think it through and accept the consequences of where the thinking will lead them, it will hurt their moral the standing as being part of the winning team. You know, we are morally better. That's why we're economically better than everyone else. It comes down to a kind of a, my team and, and those other teams out there, they're bad, but we're at least protected, we're safe, and we're morally righteous. That, that, that's why, that's the only re reason you can allow for, you know, an irrational view of the world to be accepted, because it has to be accepted. I know the lies repeated so many times and it programmed people's heads, but there must be a re reciprocal basis for the light to hold. Otherwise, from the get-go, people would be like, that doesn't fly at all. But it, this flies with Westerners because it's those other people. They're not us. They are prone to do evil things. They're not as rich as us, which is the manifest proof that they're morally lesser than us. They all want to commit mass suicide, basically, is the rationale. Yeah. Those people are going in to get their nukes so they can call commit suicide en masse. Yeah, by, yeah, that's what they use with, with Syria. Bashar al-Assad is inhuman because he kills his own people. Yeah. yeah, literally killing suicide. But then they have, you know, they have some evidence for it in history. You know, Stalin, Soviet Russia, Mao, China. There is some, there was some basis for these kinds of things to work their way in in the beginning because you could point to those places and say, look, they're killing their own people. They're nuts. So there are, but obviously there's a bit more nuance than that because there are certain episodes where countries are so backward as a result of previous decades of history, it, not least colonialism by the West, which is why they're in that backward state from the beginning. But it, it, it no longer has a basis today. I mean, China's the richest country in the world already, really. Um, it's absurd. So, and China's moral standing thus it, to use the western rationale should then be on a par therefore mm -hmm. above us so um yeah don't make any sense okay humans don't make any sense but humans don't no no well they're weird because they they, they we we all humans are idiots yeah they're they're in they're informed by things that aren't theirs but they they own them as if there's a, no, that was my thought and I had it. And this is my opinion and screw you. You offend my opinion, but it, it has nothing to do with them. It, what, it comes through them or it takes up seat in them, but it's not, it's not actually theirs too. So something else is having this information battle through them, mm -hmm. but they take ownership of it and then vociferously defend it, sometimes rationally, but quite easily it's provoked and shown to be completely insane. Um, that's the state of... That's the state of how, how it is for all of us, you know. State of the nation, state of the globe. State of the human nation. Wonderful. Lots to be hopeful for. Anyway. We better get out of here. Yes. We'll uh, leave it there for this week, folks. Thanks for listening. If you like the video, click the like button, subscribe button, and the belly icony thing. Uh, we'll be back next week with another show. So thanks for listening. See ya. See you next week. Bye.